You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. And if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that reading anywhere between page 1222 and 1224. I discovered only tonight we seem to have three different versions of the church Bible at the back, and that's roughly where you'll find them. Possibly the majority on page 1224. This is the fourth of a series of four messages on Scripture. The first was on the necessity of Scripture, why it's so important for us to have a Bible. Uh, The second was on the study of Scripture, and we focused on Easter Sunday evening on how we find Christ in the pages of Scripture. Uh, The third was on the inspiration of the Bible, and the fourth, uh, as Stuart has said, is on the reliability or the trustworthiness of the Bible. Peter speaks about Scripture in three places in his two letters, uh, once in the first chapter of the first letter, then again here in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, and then in the almost the closing verses uh, where he says that there are some things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand and the ignorant and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. And we were noting when we looked at those words the other Sunday that Peter, writing in the last third probably of the first century, regarded the letters of Paul, of which he already seemed to have a collection of his own, He knew them apparently and knew people read them and knew people misunderstood them and twisted them. And Peter calls the letters of Paul the scriptures. So already, uh, even before the death of the apostles, there's this very deep consciousness, and we'll come to this this evening, that the Lord Jesus intended the apostles to write the New Testament. And that's a very important thing to understand. It's something that we don't often hear, I think, in the Christian church, as though they did it by accident. But they were very conscious that Christ had called them, among other things, to write the Scriptures. And Peter, who was so close to the Lord Jesus, makes this obvious. Well, here, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about what happened in the transfiguration of Jesus. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. 
for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. I think if you're using the New International Version, it probably says something like, uh, we have the prophetic word uh, which is more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I'm not going to speak about that, but just notice that's there in the Scriptures. How often have you heard, but that's just your interpretation. And here Peter, he must have heard this kind of thing, is saying, no, it wasn't just a matter of personal interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Was it Louis Armstrong you first heard it from, or was it Ella Fitzgerald? It ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. I would guess that that is a pandemic, at least an epidemic, or some kind of demic in the world in which we live. If you witness for Jesus Christ, then, uh, well, that's just your point of view. The one thing modern man is sure of is that what you read in the Bible ain't necessarily so. And so it has become the orthodoxy of the 21st century that the Bible isn't to be trusted. Indeed, it's fairly commonplace if you mention the Bible for people to say, well, of course, the Bible is full of contradictions. Amazing, actually, how people seem to find it much easier to believe the Da Vinci Code which is full of stuff and nonsense from an academic point of view, but don't believe the Scriptures. It's not that they've examined the position of the Da Vinci Code any more than they've examined the Scriptures. Usually, they're completely ignorant of the Scriptures, but they are sure it's just full of contradictions. I have a friend in the United States several of them, but one in particular who introduced me to another friend. We were playing golf together, and I've known this other friend now for a number of years. Uh, he's a, a lawyer, and uh, he has a very interesting story. They both belong to the same golf club. And my friend, my older friend, was sitting at a table in, the, in one of the rooms in the golf club, several men round him uh, who knew that he was committed to Jesus Christ and they were having this little discussion in the middle of the golf club. And my new friend walked past, heard what they were speaking about, and said, the Bible's just full of contradictions. And uh, my friend said, well then, well, what would you have said? My friend had the wisdom and experience to say, 
why don't you bring along, let's say, 10 or or 12 of them um, next Tuesday, and we'll talk together about them. When I first met the man who said the Bible was full of contradictions, he was teaching an informal group of men, about 50 or 60 of them, and they were week after week working their way through Paul's letter to the Romans. The reason was, of course, in foolishly saying it's full of contradictions to a mature and wise Christian who didn't argue with him, but got him to do something. He found that as he read the Scriptures themselves, the contradictions that were in his mind vanished away, and he became personally persuaded that the Scriptures were the voice of God, the Word of God, that God spoke to him as a father speaking to his children, and he came to a lively and lovely faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's great wisdom in that, isn't there? Uh, Let me use an illustration. Uh, Do you check your bank statement? Do you check your bank statement? Well, do you trust your bank statement uh, when it comes by whatever means every month? Or do you say, no, I'm in the Bank of Scotland and I trust them? Or I'm in the Royal Bank and I trust them? Which one of those banks was the bank that had the tagline, the bank that likes to make things disappear? Why do you trust your bank statement? Is it because it's the Bank of Scotland and the men in the Bank of Scotland are so thoroughly reliable? Is it because of computers? You trust computers? Certainly not this evening you don't trust computers. No, the only way you will be convinced that your bank statement is accurate is if you read your bank statement for yourself. And so when we find ourselves, as we often do in the modern world, with people who tell us that the Bible is wholly unreliable, it's riddled with errors, our task is not to persuade them of the reliability of a book they have never opened. And they will never be persuaded of the trustworthiness of the Scriptures until the Scriptures themselves persuade them of their trustworthiness. And actually, it's this that Peter is speaking about here in this extraordinary passage, where he compares that amazing moment when he and James and John heard the very voice of God speaking about his son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And in essence, what seems to be going on in his mind is that when he opens the Scriptures, whether the Scriptures of the Old Testament or these New Testament Scriptures that were being written in his own time, he had exactly the same experience, that all of the Scriptures pointed him and came like an authoritative voice from heaven saying to him, listen to my beloved Son and trust him. 
And so he's speaking here about the trustworthiness, the reliability of the Scriptures. And he's underlining for us why it is that the Scriptures are reliable. And his basic answer to the question, why are the Scriptures so trustworthy, so reliable, his basic answer is because they come to us through the writing and speaking of men, they come to us from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. So that in a sense, when somebody puts a Bible into our hands, they could say to us, this is a gift to you from the Father, from the Spirit, and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And therefore, it is the single most reliable thing in the whole world. So, let's take a few minutes this evening to look and see how he does this. First of all, he's saying that the Scriptures are reliable because of the character of God the Father who is their author. Remember last week, I think it was last week, maybe one of these weeks, I mentioned the word that's usually translated uh, inspiration or God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16. And that word appears only once in the whole of the New Testament. It's a word without parallel. Paul may have made it up himself. He seems to have made up several words because of the uniqueness of the gospel. He needed new words. Now, the Germans do that, don't they? They just kind of add bits on to make up new words. And it's interesting, intriguing, just kind of let your imagination run with this a minute. In a few verses, Peter is going to say, you know, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Now, a word that only appears once anywhere is by definition hard to understand. If it appears in five sentences, then you're able to get a rough idea of what it means. But if it appears once in one sentence in history, it's quite hard to be absolutely sure you know exactly what it means. And just follow me in your imagination. Imagine Peter is thinking, you know, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3.16, that the scriptures are theopneustos is his word. That's quite hard for a simple fisherman like me to understand. So let me think of an illustration. And what he says here is really an illustration of what the inspiration of the Bible is. Here's a question. If I were to say to you, who wrote the Bible? Many Christians would say, God wrote the Bible. Eh. Wrong. There is hardly anything in the Bible that God actually wrote. You notice what Peter says. He says that men spoke or wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but they didn't produce the Bible just out of their own thinking, by their own will. They spoke, they wrote from God. 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, that that verb, carried along, he uses four times in these few verses. It's always very significant when you see the same word again, again, again. He says, when we were on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a voice carried to us from heaven. It was the voice of God, and we heard it with our own ears. And I think what he's saying to us here is that we should think of the inspiration of the Scriptures in the same way. Yes, it comes to us through the writings and the speaking of men. But it's actually as really breathed out by God as those words that we heard on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so in a way he's using what took place on the Mountain of Transfiguration, you can read about in the Gospels, as an illustration of what Paul is saying when he says we can trust the Scriptures because they have been breathed out by God. And God as we read in Numbers, book of Numbers, God is not a man that he should lie. As we read in Hebrews chapter 6, it is impossible for God to lie. So that what God breathes out, the words that God breathes out to us are utterly reliable in, in every way. Now, yes, but you might say, but Peter says they may have been breathed out by God, but they came through the speech of men. And isn't it true that to err is human? Well, it is true that to err is human, but it's not true that to be human is necessarily to err. And just think about, the word's chaotic enough, imagine Imagine here in the church we could not trust anything anybody said because we said to be human means by necessity, by logical necessity, that everything you say is an error. Yes, to err is a human trait, but it's not definitive of what it means to be human. And actually, we spend most of our lives, most of us in this room, I trust, spend most of our lives saying things that are absolutely true, absolutely true. Remember James Alexander Gordon, the man who read the football results from 1974 to 2013? Every single Saturday night, you remember the occasion, was there an occasion when he, and you're always trying to guess from the inflection in his voice, did they win or did they lose? Dundee 3, Dundee United 4. <laughs> I wonder if Alex, James Alexander Gordon in 40 years ever made an error. I actually doubt he ever made an error. Well, that's a trivial illustration. Here's another illustration, a much better one. When did the Lord Jesus Christ fully and truly man, ever, ever. When did he ever make a mistake? When did he ever tell a lie? 
When did he say anything that wasn't true? He was human. And in a sense, he is the great illustration, isn't he, of this marvelous power that God has to guard human beings in order that, as in the pages of Scripture, they will say and then write things that are absolutely reliable. And, of course, absolutely reliable in terms of our human ability to to understand. People say things like, well, you read the first few chapters of Genesis, scientists, the scientists, they're way beyond that. No, no, they're not way beyond that. The truth is they haven't actually got there yet. If God were to explain the mechanics by which he created the universe, the the best of scientists, their minds would be reeling. Here's a little illustration of this uh, that one day we we may be able to use. Imagine the scientists actually get behind the, the, the moment of creation. You just imagine that, you know, all this stuff bombarding under the, the, the Swiss and French Alps just now. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get back to the moment of creation. Now, let's imagine they can get back to the moment of creation that's just there, and then they can peep on the other side. What will they find? Do you know what they'll do if they ever do it? They'll come back and say, there was nothing there. You Christians, there was nothing there. What will Christians say then? Of course there was nothing there. We've been telling you that for centuries, that God made the world out of nothing. And so if you were ever able to get behind the world, nothing is what you would find. No thing Nothing. Now, what's the formula for creating a cosmos out of nothing? What human mind could understand that? See, when you begin to think with biblical logic, you see through the fallacies of the supposed highly intellectual 21st century man in his dismissal of the reliability of the Scriptures. Because they are breathed out to us from God and because they're breathed out to us in a way we could could actually understand. I don't know what the formula for creating a cosmos out of nothing is. I really don't know. It must be it must be super, hyper, ultra, uber, genius level. But you see, God speaks to us in a way I can understand, a way I can rely on that makes a difference to my daily life. But as a Christian, I know something about everything, even although I hardly know very much about anything. I know it's all God's. And he's created it. And this is his world. And I don't need to panic. And he's my heavenly father. And he's told me this in a way I can understand that is absolutely reliable. But then not content with what God the Father does, you'll notice that Peter also speaks about what God the Spirit does. 
We can rely on Scripture because the character of God the Father is its author. And we can rely on Scripture because of the work of God the Holy Spirit in its inspiration. Notice the language he uses. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Remember the the incident in the Acts of the Apostles when uh, Paul and his companions are, are in the boat, it's about to be shipwrecked, and it's being driven along by the wind. In other words, although it's not, the, it's not the wind that is sailing on the sea. It's the boat that is sailing on the sea. But the direction in which it's going, the destination towards which it's tending, all of that is determined not by the boat, but by the wind. And this is the picture that, that Peter is using here, that, that just as that voice that spoke from heaven, those words, he says, were born to earth from heaven when we heard God speak on the holy mountain. And he's saying, think of that as a picture of the way in which God has given the scriptures to us, the way we're able to read them with our eyes and hear them with our ears and understand them with our minds is because God has, God has taken up men and he has prepared them to be vehicles of his authoritative and reliable word. And because it comes to us through the Holy Spirit, he's saying, we can trust it absolutely. Indeed, I wonder if part of the point of this parallel that he works out in Second Peter chapter 1, the voice that came from heaven and we heard on the holy mountain, and the voice that comes from God through the scriptures that we hear as we read them, I wonder if part of his point is this. Tell me which of these words God spoke on the mountain of transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Which of these words is unreliable? Which of these words contains error? About which of these words would Peter or James or John have said, now listen? There's something wrong with what you're saying. And you see this parallel that he's drawing? What was it that convinced him that this was the voice of God speaking to him? What was it that convinced him? Was, did a little dove fly by and say, cheap, cheap, that's the voice of God? Or did he go down the mountain and gather the others and say, this really strange experience, can one of you tell me what it is? And maybe, maybe Matthew said, oh, that's the voice of God. No, the reason he believed it was the voice of God was because when you hear the voice of God, it carries its own authority into your soul. And he realized that what the voice said was nothing other than the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the reason they should listen to him. And in general terms, the scriptures teach us the same thing about themselves. It's only because as we read them, as we, as we study them, as we listen to them, 
that we come to recognize this is nothing other than the Word of God. Yes, there are these testimonies in Scripture, and there's that Christian whose life was transformed by the Word of God, and there are all these kinds of arguments that you can use. At the end of the day, as uh, C.H. Spurgeon once said, the best way to defend a lion is to let it out of the cage. And what will most surely convince me that the Scriptures are the Word of God is that as I read them, the Holy Spirit bears down into my soul the conviction that God speaks to me through this book. Of course, that's another reason. That's a real clue in Scripture about what we need to seek to do with the Bible in our evangelism as well as in our individual life. One of the things in our time, we need to challenge the people we know. You probably know very few non-Christians who know anything about the contents of the Bible. That, that may be frighteningly so, but it is the truth of the matter. Uh, when somebody challenges you, and you, you know they're big, and they're strong, and they're vocal, and they're argumentative, and they're so now and 21st century, and most of them you can puncture as though they were the Michelin man simply with this pin. Just tell me what it is about Paul's letter to the Romans that you have found so disagreeable. And you'll get two answers. One is you'll find what they have found disagreeable, and that will reveal the sin of their hearts, and that will give you something to pull on. Or they'll be constrained, red-faced, to make some excuse, or if there is some semblance of honesty, to say, I'm really sorry. I wouldn't even know where to find the letter to the Romans. Now, a number of years ago, one of the university CUs had Romans, first section of Romans, printed. Romans 1.18 to 3.20, I think it was, printed as though it were just a leaflet, and they distributed it in the university. And the university authorities, university senate, hauled up the leaders of the Christian Union. This flagrant piece of writing, do you know what they also insisted? that the students bring the author of the pamphlet with them. Men with degrees flowing out of their arms, men with honorary degrees from the great academic institutions of the world, utterly ignorant of the Word of God, which they have dismissed out of hand. Yes, I know there are the exceptions. Unfortunately, they are often scholars in the religion departments of the university. But by and large, that's true. And so what we need to do is to challenge people to open the Word of God, to read the Word of God. Yes, we have our apologetic arguments, but we are not lions. We are pussycats. But when the Word of God gets hold of somebody, think about my friend, a lawyer, used to reasoning things through, arguing things out, full of contradictions. Bring me a dozen. Well, then I'd better read the New Testament, find some contradictions. And what he discovers is that he has been found by Jesus Christ. 
So we trust the scriptures because the Father speaks through them, because the Holy Spirit gives them to us. And we trust the scriptures in the third place because we understand that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, promised to add to them. Now, you can't, you can't read the Gospels without being absolutely convinced Jesus completely trusted his Old Testament Bible, didn't he? We shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I think that's an astonishing statement, isn't it? We live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. But I want to take a moment, if you have the patience, and actually you don't have much choice because I'm going to do it anyway. I want to take a moment to show you something. If you turn to, uh, let's say, the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. This is the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. He's giving his disciples his final teaching. And he says something very interesting to them in chapter 13 and uh, verses uh, 13 onwards. Verse 20, he says, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, what's he doing here? What he's doing here is making these disciples, there are only 11 of them left now in the room, we call them the apostles, the sent ones, he's making them his power of attorney, to put it in modern terms. You know what a power of attorney is? You write down a piece of paper and the named person on the piece of paper can do everything with what you possess, can, in a sense, have all your authority to take your place, to carry out your desires. And that's what Jesus is doing here. There was a word that was uh, used among the the Hebrews for this. A a person would be appointed as a, a shaliach, of another person. And there was this little saying, the shaliach of a person is as the person himself. And this is a real clue to understanding what Jesus is doing in calling the apostles. He's preparing them for the time when he is not going to be there so that they can serve as his power of attorney. Remember how later on he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. Now, you know, there are probably about seven ministers in this room. They've all been ordained to the gospel ministry. None of them believes that about themselves. So, you know, if you've sins that need forgiven, don't come to me tonight because I, I don't have the authority to forgive your sins. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. But you see, he's saying to them, I'm going to give you something that will provide you with the authority to forgive the sins of others. Now, what was that? It was the gospel, of course, wasn't it? But notice how he gets there. Later on in these verses, Jesus says to these apostles, which is the same word in Greek as this word shaliach is 
in the Hebrew, he says to them, chapter 14, verse 26, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then later on, a couple of chapters later on, he says in chapter 16, verse 12, I've still many things to say to you. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, if you go home and just look at those two sections of Jesus' teaching, you'll, you'll realize actually what he's saying to the apostles is, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will enable you to write the New Testament. Why do I say that? Well, what is the New Testament? It's everything that Jesus said. It is the truth about Jesus. And it is thirdly a revelation of some things that are still to come. And those three things that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will enable them to do is actually a summary of the New Testament. And then when he comes to pray, I find this really fascinating in John's gospel. When he comes to pray in chapter 17, what he says to his father is, Now, Father, you gave words to me, and I have given words to them. And they have received those words, and now I am sending them to take those words to the ends of the earth in order that through those words, others who aren't here, others in other parts of the world, will come to believe in me. And he prays that in chapter 17. In chapter 17, he prays very explicitly. He says, Father, what I'm praying for is that through the apostles, there will be those, verse 20 of chapter 17, who will believe in me through their word. And if you turn over a couple of pages to John chapter 20 and verse 20, uh, verse 30, and have these words in mind, Jesus has prayed that through the words that the apostles give to others, they may come to believe. You notice what John says about his own gospel. He says, I've written these things down so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John got it. I don't know how long it took the others to get it, but John got it. And you see, if you, if you read John's gospel patiently from beginning to end, or even from chapter 13 into chapter 20, then it's like, it's like the Rubik cube eventually all fitting together. And you see, oh, the Father gave the Son words, the Son gave the apostles words, the apostles have given those words to the world, but how do they come to the world? How is this prayer of Jesus, Father, through their words, I'm praying that there will be others who will come to believe? And John's got it. 
You know, did you ever do the Rubik's Cube incidentally? And then one day you got it. Of course, you forgot how you got there, but you, ah. And John had a, ah, moment. I've got to write this down. And I'm writing these things down, dear readers of John's gospel, for all time, dear readers of John's gospel in Dundee in 2015, do you see that this gospel is the very thing Jesus prayed would be the instrument through which people would come to believe in him? So incidentally, the idea that the apostles would be astonished that we are still reading the things they wrote is utter nonsense because they realized that for however long it would be until Christ returned, they were the ones uniquely who had been charged with taking the words that had come from the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit and giving them to the whole church so that we would come to believe that Jesus was the Christ. That's why, to put it very simply, that's why you discovered when you became a Christian that it was actually the most natural thing in all the world to trust the Bible. Because as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Old Testament was given by the Spirit of Christ working in the prophets, just as we see here that the New Testament is given by the Spirit of Christ working in the apostles. Remember that walk on the Emmaus Road? This, this boggles my mind. Here is the resurrected Son of God. And there he is, you know, he's, he's walking along the Emmaus Road. This, walking along the Emmaus Road. He, he is the Son of God risen from the dead. Now, Foolish, let me be a fool. What, what would I say if I were the Son of God risen from the dead and these two dumbheads didn't recognize me? I'd say, don't you see me? Don't you recognize me? It's me. It's your Savior, your Lord, your Master, your King, the Son of God sent to be your Deliverer. But what does he do instead? He says it was absolutely necessary that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I mean, that's the, that's, that, I just find that absolutely astonishing that the resurrected Christ, the first thing he does after his resurrection is to say, you do trust the scriptures, don't you? Because they were pointing to me all the time. And then you remember what he did. He opened the scriptures and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and then they recognized him too. And that, that's how it happens, isn't it? Somebody opens the scriptures. Man in a chariot bought a scroll of Isaiah reading Isaiah 53. He's no idea what it's about. And Philip comes along and the Lord opens the scriptures through Philip. He preached Jesus to him. And the Spirit opens the Ethiopian's mind. And he trusts in Jesus. 
Paul in Philippi, down there by the river, there's this prosperous lady, Lydia. And Paul opens the Scriptures, and the Lord opens her heart. And she trusts in the Christ to whom the Scriptures were pointing. Dear friends, we, d- we, don't, we don't put the Bible central in our own Christian lives or central in these rather long sermons that we preach, not by comparison with previous centuries, but four times as long as the 21st century elsewhere. Why do we spend so much time doing this? It's because we're so intellectual, isn't it? No, 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 no. It's because we really believe with all our hearts that this is God's utterly reliable word. And in it, he's pointing us to somebody and saying, don't allow yourself to be just buried in the words. Let the words point you to my son. Hear him. Hear him as your Savior. Hear him as your Lord. And hear him as the one who will give you courage to say to pompous friends who tell you the Bible is full of contradictions. I dare you to find 12 for me. And I'll help you. You'll only need to read John's Gospel. So you don't need to read Genesis to Revelation. Just find 12 for me in John's Gospel. And then we can talk about it. Then you'll know the truth. But then you'll be able to say, Oh, so you're hiding from him, are you? You don't have the you don't have the real confidence in what you're saying. The assurance that you showed me you had, even to read. Oh, I know it's full of contradictions. No, you don't know it's full of contradictions. You probably hardly know a word that's in it. So come on now. Let's be friends. Let's sit down and read it. And then, by God's grace, some at least will hear his voice and trust him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for what it has meant to us, all of us in this room, in so many different ways. We've all our favorite passages, our favorite texts, because your word is so full of help and encouragement to us. And and there are bits of it we sing and bits of it that puzzle us, bits of it we know we're, we're still not able to put together and fully understand, because it's talking about the living God who created the heavens and the earth. But we thank you that We understand enough of it to know that we want to understand more of it. And we pray that as Christ speaks to us through it and we hear his voice, like sheep hearing the voice of the good shepherd, we pray that you would make us strong and courageous and confident in the reliability of your word to be able to encourage and even challenge others who in their heart of hearts have exchanged the truth about God for the lie, but know they can't give up the lie 
because it defends them against you. We pray that your word will penetrate all their defenses, bring them to our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.